Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. A Florida snowfall at Christmas time, but not exactly a white Christmas. In the state's Sugar Bowl, it's known as black snow, and it's caused by pollution. In just a bit, we'll preview a community conversation with local university presidents about the impact of AI on local campuses. But first, I'm joined by Florida reporter Michael Adenow, who's been digging into the environmental and health impacts of the state's sugar industry. Welcome, Michael. Morning, Ann. Thanks for being here. So your article was just published in Rolling Stone magazine. It's titled uh, A Fire in the River, Big Sugar and Black Snow in the Everglades. What is black snow? Black snow is what they colloquially, the term that they use for ash falling that's produced by basically the burning of sugarcane. That is ultimately how they harvest sugarcane is that they burn the outer leaves and then they harvest that stock. And they do that why? They do that because it, it's a cost-effective and simple and safer way to harvest sugarcane, and it allows them to basically get as much sucrose out of that stock without having to deal with all the leaf matter. So it's just a really effective way to get the stock. So this is um, a byproduct of the sugar industry, which is it's a huge economic engine in the mm-hmm. state of Florida. Um, give us some idea of the parameters of how big sugar is to the state and to the agricultural industry in Florida? There's half a million acres of it in the Everglades agricultural area, just south of Lake Okeechobee, largely. And it's uh, $3.4 billion. It's the third largest source of agricultural revenue in the state, and it has about 14,000 jobs. And the industry itself is a, is a multi-billion dollar industry, um, but a lot of that is coming from Florida? Well, Florida produces about 50% of the country's domestic sugar production. And then there's Texas and Louisiana, but Florida is the largest. And it's made up of basically three threads, one being a company called U.S. Sugar, another Florida Crystals, and then a third, which is the um, sugar sugar cane growers cooperative. And that's composed of basically 73 growers in the Everglades. And then it's, you know, it's essentially got a half stake Florida Crystals owns half of it, essentially. And so we talk about the area of Okeechobee. Um, for people who haven't been there, this is kind of like the southern side of the of the giant lake. Mm-hmm. Um, cities like Pahokee and Belle Glade um, and Clewiston. So mm-hmm. those are kind of like the big sugar communities. They're, they're small agricultural communities in a way, um, but they absorb a lot of the impact of the sugar industry. Yeah. Yeah. And they almost solely rely on it. I mean, it's really the only form of employment there for for many people. Um, And it's existed there for quite a long time. And those towns, which are strung along the southern edge of the lake, you know, Pahokee being the northeastern town and uh, Clewiston being the southwestern town, like those are, you know, about 30, 40 minutes away from each other. But like in between all of that is like, you know, these vast kind of agricultural areas. And so the former mayor of Pahokee was interviewed not long ago um, in 2022 by the Palm Beach Post about this practice of burning. Let's hear a little bit of that. One of the major impacts that it has on the community is the health to us here in the Glades. Um, If you do research, you'll see that our asthma rates are extremely high. Our allergy, allergic reactions to the atmospheric uh, chemicals is, is extremely high here as well and also the aesthetics of it all. Uh, If you look around the community, uh, when the cane is burned, uh, we affectionately call it black snow that falls from the sky. Uh, But I I am now affectionately calling it black death and uh, a black uh, 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 stirrup in the community. Because what's happening is when the ash falls, it falls on everything, your car, your home, uh, your clothing. So, Michael, you spoke, um, you spent two years working on this article for Rolling Stone. You spoke to a lot of people that live around there. Um, anecdotally, what do you hear about the quality of life and the impact that 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 black snow has on the residents? People believe that the, you know, the practice of burning sugarcane and the smoke that results from it has not only harmed their health, but property. And a lot of people believe that it's exacerbated symptoms of their asthma. They do have an outsized amount of you know, residents who have asthma. Um, there was a study done by the Florida State University with some other partners and funded by NASA that um, basically determined that there was, you know, there, 
were, I think uh, it contributed to, you know, like five deaths per year, so on and so forth. But before that, there was there was just the, you know, anecdotal, you know, evidence of people talking about how it affected them. So just breathing conditions, things like that. And you talked to a lot of families with kids who are on nebulizers, who are regularly either getting, you know, admitted to hospitals for treatment or having to use inhalers. It's a fairly common thing down there. We spoke to dozens of people, and many of them use a nebulizer three times a day. Some of them have teenage kids that are using a nebulizer three times a day. Um, And that's in addition to inhalers and things like that. That really does seem unusual. It is, yeah. Um, And so residents are concerned about asthma and respiratory health, but the sugarcane industry and its uh, advocates have pointed to a number of federal measurements showing that the average air particle pollution is well within federal guidelines. Um, So who's right? So the federal guidelines were developed to measure 24-hour averages. So when you have a single day, the average is composed of those 24 hours. But when you have a burn, and say you live next to a field, that burn is a really concentrated, you know, short period of this black snow and ash and particulate matter in the air. And so there had never been studies done to see you know, what the effect of that was. The companies, U.S. Sugar, publishes, I think since 2020, its own annual air report, um, the State of Our Air Report, I think it's called. And basically they claimed that it was safe. Um, And then the Palm Beach Post and ProPublica did a series of investigations that revealed that the only monitor, air monitor, that's managed by the Florida Department of Environmental Protection was monitoring a size of area like the state of Rhode Island. Um, only in Belle Glade, and it had been malfunctioning for a certain amount of time. But what was what was really glaring and what they revealed is that this didn't take into account that for one hour per day due to these burns, there could be, you know, a hazardous amount of particulate matter in the air that is linked to things like cancer and, you know, respiratory issues and cardiac issues too. And so to be clear, these burns can take maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. But if you're measuring a 24-hour average, it might sort of dilute the overall uh, register of a, you know, kind of a pollutant in the air. It just obscures the risk because that one hour where it would, you know, not meet federal standards is basically diluted by the other 23 hours. And this investigation that ProPublica did in, with the Palm Beach Post, I, I think they won a Pulitzer. They were finalists for the Pulitzer in local reporting. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, that was a fairly stark revelation, though, that this one monitor um, measuring such a large area hadn't actually been working properly. Mm-hmm. And um, the FDEP never refuted that, and they replaced it later that year in November. The Department of Environmental Protection. Um, and so ha- has the state largely been standing by its monitoring practices? Has there been pressure to perhaps expand the number of monitors or the duration of when they're actually taking those samples? Mm -hmm. And the Palm Beach Post and ProPublica, what they also revealed is that residents had been asking the Palm Beach um, Department of Health to study this for a long time and that they had ultimately refused, you know, because through all these meetings and all these public channels had been asked to do that and, you know, acknowledged it, but had never really looked at what the effect of all this burning was. So we're talking about the uh, health and environmental impact, um, questions about that in the sugar industry in Florida. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 549-2937. Don't forget, you have to put a 904 in front of that now, 904-549-2937. You can also email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org or reach out on uh, social media platforms. So, um, Michael, the study that you referenced, this FSU study from 2022, it found that the sugarcane fires resulted in uh, 5,100 metric tons of really tiny, fine micron particles. Um, what's the special risk of those kinds of particles? It's essentially that they are so microscopic that they affect your respiratory system, um, whereas larger particles would not. And so what residents claim is that those particles are affecting their health, whereas the companies, the growers, say that the particles are large enough that they are not. And until that study, there really had not been any close study of what the effect of burning sugarcane in Florida, you know, what the effects of that were. 
And what I thought was really interesting was that the particulate matter that they're measuring there, they said was basically the equivalent to uh, all of Florida's on-road motor vehicles, like the emissions of those in terms of the particulate matter, which seems like just a great magnitude. So yeah, the the I think it's the Windrock Foundation, but they were commissioned by the Everglades Foundation, which is this big Everglades coalition to look at the you know greenhouse gas emissions caused by the growers and the Everglades agricultural area. But what was really interesting about that is that even though the emissions equal 1.6 million cars per year, it's not due to burning. Only 2% of it was composed by burning, while it was 98% due to soil oxidation. On the farms? Mm-hmm. Explain that. So essentially that soil is, you know, sitting bare and releasing, you know, emissions just by sitting bare throughout throughout the year. And that's um, uh, unique to the sugarcane industry as opposed to other agriculture in Florida? or I'm not sure, but it has something to do with that specific soil, that type of organic muck soil. Yeah, that is where, where they drained the Everglades essentially, and this muck is kind of the very rich soil left mm-hmm. underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a call uh, at an Orange Park. Good morning, Ed. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning. I'm uh, Great uh, show here. Uh, I'm sure you guys know who the Fanghul family is. F A N J U L. They're the one of the biggest sugar producers in the world, and they are uh, based in Palm Beach. My family members uh, worked for them for many years. They were the they're the most smartest, politically savvy people that we ever met. Two brothers, billionaires, live next to each other in Palm Beach. One brother was super big, very big donor to the Republican Party. The other brother who lives next door, super big, very big donor to the Democrat Party. No matter who won, they won That's in, in, uh, in politics. Very smart. Uh, they could pick up the phone and reach the White House no matter who, what party was in power. Uh, they played the game brilliantly. Uh, and that's one reason why Big Sugar what has been so influential and untouched by politics. And Ed, you grew up in the sugar uh, industry area. The sugar, yes, uh, my uncles worked for uh, the sugar industry all their lives. Thanks for the call, Michael. Um, talk a little bit about the political um, role, kind of the role that politics plays in sugar. So the Van Hul family built the company, which is known as Florida Crystals, and they, you know, without going into the weeds with it, basically they are the largest sugar refiner in the world. They have mills and you know, four states and seven countries and own a vast amount of land in, in Florida. And in this isn't just Florida Crystals, but they are one of the most deaf political navigators. And ultimately what the sugar industry focuses on is galvanizing what is the, the sugar program in terms of subsidies, quotas, tariffs, and the way that the federal government allows sugar growers to produce sugar at a higher cost than the world market. Um, and so that's what the caller was referring to. But just to give your listeners a sense, in the 2020 election cycle, the Florida sugar industry gave $11 million. And in between 19, I guess, 94 and 2021, they spent $65 million just in state elections alone. So they really spend a lot of money, and that's why they're thought of as such a powerful entity and colloquially known as Big Sugar. And as Ed uh, referenced, in a sort of bipartisan fashion. The Fan Hools especially, yeah. If you look at their uh, campaign contributions, you'll always see a kind of like even amount. And um, it's also interesting to look at the history of where the sugar industry spent um, because you can see at what point which party, Democrat and Republican, was, you know, more empathetic towards the industry. Kind of connected to spending. Yes, because they have ultimately choreographed the policies that apply to the sugar industry, not just in the state, but federally. We've got a call, Javon. Good morning. Uh, Welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning. Uh, There's an excellent podcast, Big Sugar. I don't know if it's been mentioned or if anybody's heard of it, but it gets into the weeds on the sugar industry from the perspective of uh, the primarily black folks who were uh, doing this work as immigrants and how they were uh, coming from the West Indies and Jamaica and how they were scammed out of um, their fair pay. It talks about the Fon Hul brothers, one's a Republican, one's a Democrat, and how, as your guest was just speaking about, they have 
um, manipulated American politics and gotten a ton of our tax dollars to subsidize their their uh, industry and how that is having environmental impacts. It does a really great job of showing how these political things are having environmental and health impacts on our lives. So for those who want to get into the weeds on what sugar is doing to our health, our environment, and our politics, Big Sugar is an excellent um, is, is an excellent podcast on that. Thanks for the recommendation. Is that one that you're familiar with? Yes. Yeah. And uh, a lot of that work started with the New York writer Alec Wilkinson in the 90s and then was followed up in 2011 in Vanity Fair with Marie Brenner, who has one of the most eloquent, absolutely breathless profiles of not just the Van Hools, but all of the attorneys that worked on those cases over the years. And so what personally got your interest going in this subject? I grew up in South Florida. I grew up in the Everglades. Um, It was something that driving across State Road 80, I would notice driving through those towns. And then later, it just, it became something that you couldn't ignore living in South Florida. I mean, ultimately, the industry and the way that it has interacted with the state and federal government um, and agriculture at large has just altered the ecology of South Florida in a way that all South Floridians know about the sugar industry. All South Floridians know the Van Hools and U.S. Sugar and those names and how powerful they are. So um, our caller referenced, you know, the um, racial makeup of some of the people in that area. It is a predominantly black and uh, Latino area of Florida. How does that figure into the uh, the issues of health or, you know, uh, environmental justice that come up surrounding this issue? Well, a lot of people think of it as a very glaring example of environmental injustice, um, largely because in 1991, residents in, you know, Palm Beach County on the eastern side is Palm Beach, you know, where Mar-a-Lago and the Fan Hools and great wealth exists. And then on the western side is, you know, a third of residents live in poverty and it triples the national average. And that's where the sugar industry exists. And it is largely black and Hispanic. And in 1991, residents in eastern Palm Beach County in the affluent part of the county, which is also, you know, it's denser. There's more people that live there. They organized and lobbied the Florida Department of um, Agriculture essentially to halt burning when the winds blew west and carried that smoke from the sugar fields in the Everglades agricultural area over the affluent part of Palm Beach County. So since 1991, they have only been allowed to burn their fields when that wind blows east from the and, east and into these black and Hispanic communities. And I think that for most people, that is the clear example of that social injustice. And so they basically, are, if on those days when the smoke would be covering, you know, kind of a more privileged, whiter area of Palm Beach County, that the burning's not allowed? Nope. Um, so it would seem that it would naturally have more impact health-wise if there is a health impact on the people who are living in those areas, because, uh, again, the, the burning days would be concentrated in those areas. Yes, exactly. And that's why for a long time, advocates um, and critics of burning you know, there has been this tussle between what's called green harvesting, which is where you harvest the cane without burning it. um, And you essentially have to mechanically remove those leaves from the stock. It is, it increases costs and it reduces the amount of sucrose that you could cultivate from those stocks. And so the industry has been slow to embrace that, but for many years has green harvested in cases where say a field borders a school, a hospital, or a main road where it might you know, pose some risk to drivers and things like that. Um, But in a place like Brazil that is, you know, harvesting 20 million acres of sugarcane has almost eliminated the practice completely. And that's 20 times the amount of sugar that we grow in America among three states, which is only a million acres. They're not burning. They're burning only in certain places where there is, you know, you are unable to get one of these massive, you know, tractors into. So like inclined areas, but otherwise they have almost eliminated the practice completely. We're talking about the health and environmental impacts of Florida's sweet tooth. You can join our conversation by calling 904-549-2937 or emailing firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also post to Facebook, Instagram, or X. Um, So the reports of experts have been... um, slow or have not really um, maintained health impacts. There have been a number of studies that appear to indicate, for instance, the Florida Department of Health said that the the 
air quality was some of the best in the state. It met all ambient air quality standards. The American Lung Association gave Palm Beach County an A for air quality. Um, DEP says that their air monitors consistently show the region as some of the best air quality in the state. Um, and these burns are regulated by the Florida Forest Service. So where do you see the disconnect between what uh, residents say they're experiencing in terms of health impacts and I think what we all sort of um, intuitively know in terms of like breathing in ash and heavy smoke as a hazard and the findings of these various agencies. Yes. So the the first one comes from U.S. Sugar, that it's meeting all the ambient air quality standards and that it's safe, so on and so forth. The air quality thing is that the way that you have to think of it is they're looking at the entire year and they're referring to just Palm Beach County. You know, sugar grows you know, in Glades, Hendry, and Palm Beach County, but in Palm Beach County, only in that western portion. And in Palm Beach County, say the eastern side along the, you know, Atlantic, they are not receiving smoke. And when they are saying that they have better, you know, air quality, they're looking at the whole year when they only burn from October until May. And again, it's just like the 24-hour averages. When you look at that vast amount of time and average that out, it does meet it. And the air quality is good. But ultimately, you're obscuring that risk of those concentrated burn periods that happen between October and May. Is there has there been any um, better effort to to do that kind of granular level uh, analysis of the, you know, the short term impacts of this of in, inhaling this kind of material? Palm Beach Post and ProPublica were the first to install local monitors on residents' homes to show what the effect of that burning was. And that, I, I think, spurred this you know, FSU study that was sponsored by NASA to look more closely at it. Um, I think that there needs to be a lot more research done, but the Palm Beach Post and ProPublica showed very clearly that this was a serious hazard to residents' health. What does it say that 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 kind of research, that deep analysis was left to reporters, essentially. Unfortunately, it's that the Department of Health has not devoted resources to protecting residents' well-being, at least in Palm Beach County. And this is a place that is relatively unknown. A lot of people have never been to that part of Florida. And it is, it's a place where a lot of people do not have a voice. And those that have spoken up and been a part of class action lawsuits and things like that and spoken to reporters and devoted time and energy to try and change things have been, you know, met with a cold shoulder and are not particularly, um, you know, inspired to continue working to change that. Of course, there's many people that do and have devoted their lives to trying to change the practice of the sugar industry and to create a more harmonious relationship between the residents and the industry. But the industry is so powerful. And so grassroots organizations are just often, you know, um, they, they need so much endurance that the industry has in spades, but that is difficult to cultivate when you're running on shoestring budgets or just paying for things out of pocket, going to commission meetings, going to D.C. lobbying. I mean, it's just it's it's um, David Goliath style. And as you mentioned earlier, I mean, a lot of the people who live there really do depend on the sugar industry for their for their livelihood. They do. So that maybe creates an imbalance as well. Ultimately, it's so difficult because these people rely on it and they're not asking for the sugar industry to cease to exist. They're not against agriculture. They're not against farming. I mean, a lot of these people have devoted their lives to this agrarian way of life and love that place. It's that they want the practices to change. They want, you know, one of your callers was referring to in the 90s how they shorted, you know, you know, laborers wages. That was something that changed. You know, they mechanized the you know harvesting of it they have changed the industry has changed and residents are again asking for a change in its practices and its you know business practices and ultimately i think that the industry has just been slow to embrace that one of the changes that uh, or some of the changes that have come about after activism um, by residents I, I found kind of interesting and i guess probably a little dispiriting to those who are pushing for change i mean there have been a couple attempts at class action style lawsuits. Uh, they've not been successful, um, but they have prompted some changes in 
Florida law. Um, With it, the farm bill. Right. Right. Tell us a little bit about the the Florida legislature expen- expanded something called the Right to Farm Act. Um, I'm not particularly familiar with the legalese of it and how it would work, but I can explain it in layman's terms, which is essentially that if you live within a certain distance of a farm, you ultimately can't make a complaint about it, it because they're thought of as um, nuisance complaints. So um, you have a neighbor that doesn't like you and doesn't like the music you play and so calls the police on you all the time or things like that. And it's that is the structure of it, but it is meant to prevent residents from suing or you know any kind of retaliation against the, the growers. And it sounds like this expansion added particle emissions to the list of farming practices that are essentially protected from lawsuits. Yes, yeah. So and, it forces, I mean, anybody that would file a lawsuit would have to be some outsider, which is instantly cut down by like, you know, the old adage of outside agitators have come in to, you know, change our way of life kind of. That's the argument that's made. And they probably wouldn't have legal standing to bring a case if they're not from there, I would presume. No, with no property. I mean, one of the class actions, they tried to make the case that the ash was affecting their property, you know, affecting their homes, which it does. Um, and that was that was an argument that they made in, in court. Interestingly, there was also another um, law that was passed on that very issue, which said it kind of limits the dollar amount that plaintiffs can collect in lawsuits against farmers Um the amount that they could collect to the actual decline in their property values, which in a place where the property values are pretty low, um, that would seem to really disadvantage poor people from bringing a case. I mean, if it's if you're talking about, you know, bringing down property values in a place where they're already pretty, pretty rock bottom. Absolutely. And I mean, the the most difficult thing to accept about this is that it is um, the burden is on the people that are most vulnerable and also l- like unable to devote the time, energy, and resources to navigate all of this bureaucratic red tape and spend time in Tallahassee and hire attorneys and so on and so forth. And so, yes, there have been the ambulance chasers that have come in and tried to you know, find a big settlement for the residents. And then there have been the cases where there have been absolutely brilliant lawyers that have come in and won you know, for those residents. And, you know, Edward Tutenham, that case in the 90s, I think was overturned on appeal, but he won an exorbitant amount for those laborers who wages were being shorted. And so um, the story that you did, I mean, you're talking to these people, there have been these longstanding battles. Do you, were they hopeful of change? Were they um, kind of exhausted by continuing to have these same discussions after years of, you know, fighting to, to see some difference? Everything. I think that there is definitely the very sad, depleted, you know, people who have just simply given up and do not see um, a, a path forward for change. And then there are people who are just so inspired and absolutely brilliant and working on it every second that they can devote to it. And so you have everything in between there. We've got a call, Mark, on the south side. I believe he's got a question for you, Michael. Good morning, Mark. Hey, good morning. I uh, was just hoping Michael could clarify something. Did I understand correctly when you said 2% of this particular issue is a result of the burning of the sugarcane leaves and 98% of it is a result of the natural oxidation from the agricultural grounds down there? If I understood that correctly, people are suing over the 2%, but not over the 98 percent it just seems if that's the case it almost seems like a a misguided approach to this problem oh good morning sir uh no they're not suing over the uh, greenhouse gas emissions um the lawsuits that um ann was referring to were regarding the smoke and damage to property and health and then prior to that there were lawsuits regarding uh labor the workers wages that were being shorted um, just curious uh, what you're working on now, if you can give us any clue as to your next project. I know you do a lot of reporting, uh, Michael, about environmental issues around Florida. Yeah, I'm working um, here in uh, Duval County right now, and I'm working on a piece about the migration of mangroves due to climate change around the world. And Florida is a particularly interesting place uh, here, St. John's County, 
and Nassau County, where mangroves have been historically trending further and further north as freezes decline and storms become more frequent. It's an interesting debate, too, because mangroves, to some extent, they're, you're, you're seeing climate change in a northern migration, but they also do provide some shelter along the shoreline from sea level rise. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because in the scientific community, there is this like, you know, this conversation going on about the consensus of will mangroves outpace other habitats as they, you know, grow further and further north? And what does that mean for the flora and fauna that's inextricably tied to that? But then, of course, with, you know, sea level rise and things like that, it is a hopeful sign that we would have mangroves because they build land much faster than, say, salt marsh, which everyone who lives here has seen Spartina grass at some point in their life. And so imagine all of those vast, you know, flats of Spartina grass being replaced by mangroves. And that is essentially, you know, there's a zero-sum game there happening to some extent, you know. Well, it sounds like a great next article. We uh, look forward to reading it. And Michael Adno, thank you so much for coming in and talking about your recent story in Rolling Stone. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. Stick around. We're going to be talking about AI on local college campuses and what local college presidents fear and a welcome about that new technology. back. The presence of artificial intelligence in the classroom is no longer an if or when, but a now. Just how it will shape higher education is a matter of much debate, especially among those in academia. I'm joined now by the moderators of a panel discussion tomorrow on this topic, Dr. Audrey Ante and Dr. Scott Kaysen, director and associate director, respectively, of the Academy for Teaching and Learning at FSCJ. Welcome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, and to our listeners, what questions do you have about AI in the classroom or on campus? You can give us a call at 904-549-2937 or send an email to firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also reach out on social media. Uh, Dr. Audrey Ante, why did you decide to host this discussion? So um, if you all remember, uh, an article came out from The Atlantic uh, in 2022, you know, with the kind of proclaiming the college essay is dead. And so for a lot of us, faculty, community colleges, state colleges and universities, this was very concern concerning and alarming. And um, so just gradually through conversations and through trying out some of the different technologies and taking a deeper look at like the uses, benefits, um, potential problems, you know, in, in the uses of AI for education, our institution wanted to have a larger conversation um, and so uh, Dr. Kathleen uh, Seesvolts, one of our uh, associate vice provosts, and our college president, Dr. Avendano, kind of wanted to kind of continue the conversation and build uh, opportunities for the community and for us to talk to other leaders at other institutions about like how they're, how they're thinking they might manage this, how it's going to affect teaching and learning at their institution, you know, their hiring practices, our, our partnerships with businesses and, and local industries and um, and we were invited to moderate and very happily accepted uh, because we, we really are invested. We want to know kind of what, what our leaders think and what their plans are for the future of higher education. And Dr. Scott Kaysen, for those who maybe didn't read the Atlantic article or only were familiar with the headline, explain to us a little bit what the conclusion was of the, the, the story, the, the, the college essay being dead. So this, of course, is a ongoing conversation in terms of uh, where the college essay currently stands and how instructors should go about approaching the writing process, right? Where things seem to be right now is um, uh, in order to ensure a kind of authentic learning experience in terms of the writing process, 
to have students integrate their own kind of personal experiences within the writing process themselves to uh, recapture, if you will, their the self in the writing process. And uh, that's where I think a lot of instructors are in terms of um, uh, in the current state. And the concern, though, being that AI uh, supplants that, that basically that kids might be using it um, not as an assist, but really as a substitute for their own writing skills. Absolutely here. So we can sort of think about this along a continuum, if you will, or a spectrum um, with two different axes, right? On the one side, you have this sense of should education, um, the classical kind of sense of education in the sense of uh, no AI in the classroom whatsoever um, uh, uh, to ensure that uh, we can hone uh, the human skills as best as possible. The other end of the spectrum may be more of the futurist type of, type of, type of perspective, the idea that AI is inevitable, um, that it can reach students on an individual basis, bring in as much as possible. My guess is most faculty fall somewhere in that middle ground along that spectrum, seeing AI as a potential tool, at the same time recognizing that the human element must remain in the classroom to ensure kind of an authentic uh, pedagogical experience for students. Um, Dr. Ante, what are you seeing and hearing on campus? I mean, you're a teacher yourself. Um, what are you hearing from educators? What are you hearing from students? So from our faculty, we're, we are hearing people who are kind of across the spectrum that Scott kind of mentioned, um, people who would prefer to just kind of not allow its use in their courses, people who are starting to kind of integrate it um, because we are aware, you know, when we know more about how other businesses want students to be prepared to work in their field, that AI may be a part of that or a component of that. Um, and people who've sort of embraced it as a learning tool um, among students, um, we are starting to invite them to the conversation because initially sort of that kind of fear factor uh, that we experienced, the shock value of that essay headline, um, you know, didn't lead us initially to, to think about what the student voice would say because we just want to ensure that they're submitting their own authentic work and try to prevent cheating and maintain the rigor of our programs. Um, we are going to be inviting students more to the conversations that we have in the future, but just from the experience of being in the classroom, um, I don't think that I have seen widespread use of it yet. There have been a couple of instances. Um, we have uh, a tool called Turnitin that we use for, for plagiarism detection, and it also um, advertises that it detects AI. And that's really just sort of a conversation opener. You know, if it, if it has tagged an essay as having used AI, um, you know, reaching out to the student and sort of, you know, talking about, like, why does it say this? And also if they say that they didn't use AI because there are other tools like Grammarly um, that have predictive language qualities that can be flagged by an AI detector, uh, talking to them about the qualities of the essay itself that maybe still need to be improved. So I have seen some students have students told me that they have used AI to write essays, and then we just kind of go from there. Um, but, I mean, we don't want to have combative relationships with our students. We're there to support them. We want to help them learn and, you know, understanding, to how they think they're going to need AI will definitely sort of, you know, help us have those broader conversations and um, think a little bit more specifically about how it will or won't be incorporated in different courses. And Dr. Kaysen, it's interesting um, how she lays that out kind of initially an uh, um, adversarial relationship in terms of student versus teacher when this new technology kind of became a classroom presence or a threat. Um, do you see that? changing, uh, maybe, you know, mitigating uh, as the technology is more widely used, perhaps on both sides of the of the desk, so to speak. Yeah. So Audrey and I were just talking about this a few minutes ago, in fact, that whenever this conversation first began to unfold, there was a lot of pushback uh, as the academy was hosting various professional developments in AI. But what we've noticed over the past several months is more openness and a recognition that Okay, so there is a freedom to bring some some in as as a tool, and really uh, up to the, up to the instructor of how far that can go. So there there, there does seem to be more openness uh, um, from the standpoint of, of professors here. And do you think? I mean, I feel like a lot of AI is almost worming its way into our life in a way that you know you talk about like predictive text, but there's there's so many uses I feel like we're becoming accustomed to that we might not even think of as AI um, as a cheat or a, you know, a tool is, but it, but it really is something that just kind of manifests in our work almost without us asking for it. 
So, I mean, there are some organizations that use AI as part of their hiring practices to vet applications. It's actually existed in education for quite some time. Um, more instructional AI or passive AI than kind of the generative AI that, that we're seeing or having more conversations about now. But um, it isn't a new technology. Uh, just the, the way that it's sort of changing and the jumps that we're seeing um, and what it can do are making a lot of us pay a little bit more attention than we would have normally. Um, because if it isn't sort of actively affecting what you do, if it's, if it's kind of a technology that sits in the background and kind of helps you accomplish a task, um, you don't necessarily think about whether it's good or bad. You just accept it as sort of like a technology exists, like searching the internet. Like we just kind of accept that we can search the internet for information. Um, ChatGPT uh, has sort of like reframed that to now like having a conversation with a person um, about what they're looking for still on the internet as opposed to, to that passive kind of search. So it isn't really brand new. Um, and, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, it's good that we've been made in higher ed a little bit more aware of it um, because it is going to be important to prepare students for it in their, in their lives and in their careers. So who is part of the panel discussion um, and what institutions are they from? So um, our, our college president, Dr. Evan Dono, is going to be um, one of the, the panelists. We also have uh, President Cost from uh, JU, uh, Dr. LeMam from UNF, and uh, President Pickens uh, from St. John's River State College. And who is invited and how can they attend? So anyone um, is welcome to, to join. Uh, we have on our website, fscj.edu backslash AI dash FSCJ, uh, uh, a button so that people can RSVP. We would just really like to know kind of how many numbers to expect. So we appreciate if people can indicate their interest and whether they're going to participate in person or online because you can join virtually and listen in. Um, and that that RSVP will close at uh, 5 p.m. today, but the actual link to the virtual component will be made available on the website tomorrow. We want people to come, you know, from the different institutions, but also, you know, from the community if they're interested in the conversation and the questions that we're going to be asking. And they aren't just about teaching and learning, although we do have some questions about that as well. Um, but they're about, you know, planning for the future and, you know, those partnerships with uh, people in the community. So anyone's welcome to, to come and listen. And there will be a Q&A at the end of the, the panel portion. So if people have questions, they're welcome to bring those. And uh, Dr. Kaysen, just briefly, what is your number one question that you want answered? Yeah, so what I'm really interested in, what I hope folks uh, hear from this is that it, this is not just a, AI is not just going to impact the classroom, right? That is going to have a uh, ubiquitous impact beyond just the classroom and uh, the other fields within, within our institutions as well. That this is something that's going to... Um, uh, affect all people involved within our, our, our organizations here. Well, I've been speaking with Dr. Audrey Ante and Dr. Scott Kaysen from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at FSCJ. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And we'll be right back with what one local teacher did to help her deaf student raise money for an overseas interpreter. cigarettes come to where the flavor is come to marlboro country then it was the jewels and all the flavored vapes friend of mine said why wouldn't you just try the jewel then all those other disposable vapes that sort of replaced the jewel but now it's zen we're gonna hit the nicotine moral panic du jour on the next today explained tonight at 6 30 here on wjct news 89.9 
I'm Carolyn Beeler. Miami's Little Haiti is on the brink of being lost, with developers buying up the land. They came with a sense of business. You know, let's tear down the old, let's build a new. Them not respecting the, the history and the culture and everything that Little Haiti has been through. Community leaders want to prevent Little Haiti from disappearing forever. That's next time on The World. This afternoon at 3, here on WJCT News 89.9. The global pandemic normalized remote and hybrid work. That's super appealing to young people, mm -hmm. but the outcome of this process is culture. So how's that culture working out? Many of us learned how to work and connect with colleagues at our first jobs in the office. Are young people today missing out on that professional coming-of-age experience? That's on the next On Point. Today at 11 on WJCT News 89.9. A trial in Michigan looks at parental responsibility when a child commits a mass shooting. And new revelations on the police failures in Uvalde, Texas, shed light on police responsibility to stop a gunman. Next time on 1A, what does accountability look like when tragedies occur? Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. And we're back. High schools across Duval County partner with a travel education company each year to offer students a learning experience abroad. But it's a price tag on that ultimate field trip that can be too high for many. For one local student, she learned that if she wanted to make the trip, she'd have to pay double. I'm joined now by Atlantic Coast High School junior Emerita, who's deaf, and her interpreter, Kira Craner. Welcome to you both. Also, Sarah Collado, art teacher at Atlantic Coast High School. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Sarah, you're uh, Emerita's teacher, and you recently created a GoFundMe account. Um, explain why. Um, well, uh, Emerita's family worked really hard to provide her with the opportunity to travel with us uh, this summer, 2024, to Italy and France. And um, what we didn't realize when she enrolled in the program um, was excuse me, that um, there wouldn't be an additional funding source to provide her with an interpreter. I also had never met Amarita when she enrolled, um, so I actually didn't know that she was deaf until her mom reached out and told me about the situation. And um, after exhausting a few other opportunities and resources, we figured that this would be the best way to make it happen for her, to bring uh, an equitable experience to this young woman. And so currently at school, is there an interpreter that works with her at school or would this just be because of the travel? Um, no, Kiara, Duval County Public Schools does offer an interpreter for uh, Amarita. So Kiara is Amarita's interpreter at school. Unfortunately, that funding doesn't exist outside of school-sponsored activities. So regular field trips, um, anything within the county or within the United States is, is covered. But because we're traveling outside of the United States, it's, it's just unfortunately not. And Amarita, what is it um, that you're looking forward to on this trip? And um, tell me if you can a little bit about how you first learned that uh, Sarah had created this GoFundMe. to just learn something new and to have a new experience. And when I first learned that they created the GoFundMe, I was really grateful for the teacher for being able to set that up for me. And also I kind of felt like she uh, had to set it up because they weren't providing the access that I needed to be able to go on this trip. So I'm grateful for that. What are you most looking forward to about Italy? Trying their pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I want to report when you uh, come back about it. Um, so, Sarah, the uh, the school district doesn't have this um, fund available. What are the parameters of the um, interpreter um, provision for a student who's hard of hearing or deaf? Um, well, it depends on the student, from what I understand. I am not an expert in deaf, hard of hearing um, education. Uh, we do have a deaf, hard of hearing educator on campus, um, which Amarita is enrolled in her class. Um, I am an art teacher, so I, Amarita is the first deaf student I've ever had. So this experience is a continual learning um, opportunity for me. Um, when Amarita was in my class, when I found out she was on my roster this year, 
um, I was really concerned on how I would learn how to communicate with this young woman. Um, and as a default, I had to also figure out how to communicate with her interpreter. I'm learning things every day about what it means to communicate um, just in general and build relationships with students. Um, but as far as like what we're able to do on campus, it is pretty equitable. Um, she has a full her interpreter with her everywhere she goes. Um, and I think um, how she interacts between the interpreter um, and teachers like me is is very um, it's it's really based in self-advocacy. Amarita is a great communicator. I don't always need to have her interpreter with me to understand what she's saying. Sometimes I can see it on her face, what she's saying. And Amarita, uh, in terms of like the classes that you take and, and have an interpreter for, is it different in an art class like Sarah's um, as opposed to like a math class, how the interpreter helps you understand and, and work with the teacher? Or is it kind of the same in all of the classes? Really, I feel like it's kind of the same in every class because I'm used to having an interpreter with me kind of all the time in class. So, yeah, it's about the same, whatever class I'm in. Are there other deaf students at the school? Yes, but I don't really have it. We're not in the same grade, so we're in different classes. Gotcha. And on this trip, is there anything that concerns you about traveling um, and and having the interpreter in terms of just your experience there? Are there barriers there? Or do you think that having her with you will be sufficient to kind of allow you? Because obviously it's a language barrier for a lot of the students on every level because it's, you know, Italy. Um, and if they're not fluent in Italian, they're going to have some barriers themselves. Well, I think that... Um... There, there will be a language barrier, but I'm not really concerned about that with an interpreter because she kind of is my voice and um, she's able to voice for me in, cer in certain situations and make communication more fluid for us. And are you going or is this a, a fluent Italian interpreter? I am going and I do not speak Italian, <laughs> just sign. So how will you adapt to that? in terms of interpreting for her, but not speaking the language. She will be interpreting for me, I think, in that situation, um, for gestural uh, communication. That would be my guess. Well, thank you, uh, Emerita, Kira, and Sarah Collado. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Have fun in Italy. Thanks so much. And that's our program. We welcome your feedback and suggestions for future conversations, and you can always catch a rebroadcast at 8 or listen to our podcast. Join us Wednesday as we talk with stalking in the military. Local military bases are offering victims a lifeline. I'm Ann Schindler. You've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO. 